Hello and welcome. This is another episode of Curiously Polar. My name is Chris Markbart and Henry is with us too, of course. Hi there. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulous. We are back with uh, something after after the fire, after the, uh, the, <laughs> the most beautiful creature on the planet, the majestic <laughs> Greenland shark. I st I'm still laughing about uh, this. This animal, I mean, it's 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 exciting. It's uh, it's um, it's amazing that this thing gets this old, and uh, you can kind of see it. <laughs> you can kind of see how old it is when you see those <laughs> those videos and pictures. Um, but yeah, this is, was really truly weird. So if you, if if anyone hasn't listened to that one yet, worth a listen. Episode sixty five. Um, we're back on land. Well, we're going to Svalbard, to Spitsbergen. And uh, what are we talking about today? We are talking about, um, well, the, the title says it's Search and Rescue in Svalbard, mm -hmm. which is uh, a topic that came to my mind when I went up there for uh, work on in, in, in the plunges this summer. But um, we also tackled that, that topic already in our episode 58, when we talked about um, cruise ships going to the North Pole right. in a not-so-far future. And when it comes to those new plans, then, of course, you think about how can you actually assure the safety of uh, the passengers, of the tourists going there. <clears throat> and um, that was something that came to my mind, especially when I read a report about a stranded fishing vessel mm -hmm. in, uh, in Logan Strait. And, and, that is, is, uh, and that is something that I think I have to emphasize, especially for those listening who have never been up in the Arctic and in some of those places, because when, when you travel in, in air quotes, normal regions where you just can simply get to by an airplane and, uh, and book on, I don't know where, but, uh, th th it's always kind of possible to get rescued. If something happens, you might have some travel insurance. And then that includes, uh, in case you need a hospital visit that that's paid or that you are, uh, taken back in a helicopter and, and be transported back home. And if that's the case, um, but the moment you you leave these normal latitudes and and you go further north, this becomes a bit more difficult. And uh, in some places, it yeah, it it might even be impossible to get a rescue helicopter in. That's exactly the point. Um, there was an incident last December around Christmas when a fish trawler just got grounded in Hinlopen Strait in the worst um, circumstances ever. The weather was just not with them. And Hinlopen Strait, I'm not sure if you um, if you know the topography of um, Svalbard a little bit, it's a narrow strait between the main island Spitsbergen and the northeast island, North Ostland. I'm looking uh, at the map right now, yes. Usually, at that time of the year, there should be a very thick ice cover of sea ice, making it impossible to sail there. Last winter, the sea ice was um, actually making it um, able to sail down there and fish. And they went in there in the biggest storm ever, and they got grounded. They found a rock which was, wasn't on the map before, and... Um, then they we, called we're for still help. talking uncharted waters in some of those places. So exactly, exactly. Yeah, 
Um, so they called for help, and those search and rescue uh, measures actually they really um, surprised me. We are talking about two thousand people living in Longyearbyen in, in the main settlement in in Svalbard. Uh, it's two thousand five hundred in all of Svalbard, um, and when we are sailing there with cruise ships in those waters, we are kind of counting on the search and rescue services in the area in case something happens because this is our life insurance this is pretty much what we are basing our of course no one wants to be in that situation but if we are in that situation we count that someone comes and helps us and this is something that uh, drove me a little bit and um, i met um, a person a colleague actually um, she's from longyearbyen um, irene and uh, she's part of uh, search and rescue teams of the Red Cross, actually, in uh, Longyearbyen. And she gave me some insights on how search and rescue operations are held. She actually gives us some insights on that particular case of the fish trawler. And I talked with her also about um, how does search and rescue has to develop or how does it work uh, already today um, for further explorations further north to the north pole because that's actually what um gives me uh, a big headache when when we see that um more ice strengths and ships more icebreakers will um, get into service in the upcoming years bringing tourists to the north pole where it's basically not very likely to get um search and rescue um help in time all right, so let's hear from her. Considering the increasing numbers of tourists coming to Svalbard year by year, um, what are the biggest challenges um, connected to tourism in a remote place like uh, Svalbard? Uh, considering remote places, uh, I think uh, we have a challenge when things go wrong. Um, as long as everything goes according to plan, it's pretty much like everybody else and every place else. But um, when things do not go according to the plans and many people coming up here, they have basically no idea how bad it really gets. You can read a lot about weather, about climate, about other challenges. And the biggest challenge is that help is probably very far away. and. Also, you need to actually ask for help or being able to ask for help is not so easy because um, the radio signals up here don't really go that far. The further north you go, the, f the less contact you have with the satellites, the communication satellites. So that's probably the worst thing, I think. When I look at other places, we have um, the situation that um, in, in most places the behavior or the, the the attitude of tourists have changed uh, tremendously in the past five six seven ten years and uh, more and more people are coming uh, to remote places which are not prepared at all do you have some similar um things happening here in, in Svalbard yeah, I think so, but I, th I don't think the clientele has, well, the clientele has changed, of course, but I don't think people in general have changed, but um, Swabat has been more accessible. Um, it's more, the marketing has become more intense, so um, and also uh, it's easier to find information or good pictures or 
tempting uh, videos about this remote place and it's really sold as the pristine pristine Arctic, the last frontier somewhere. So um, a lot of people get to hear it, um, a lot more people finally get access because there might be cheap tickets and uh, more flights, more different ways of accessing this, uh, this part of the world. So of course then you get the whole variety of tourists and you get not only those who are extremely well um, educated on this area, how to behave here, how to face the challenges and they are yeah, you get everybody, basically those who can just step into some counter, buy a b uh, ticket and then end up here and have no idea about what is going to meet them. Um, how many times a year do you have certain accidents or uh, emergency situations um, connected with tourism? I don't have numbers. It's, uh, it depends. Some years it's uh, big things and other things it's like the the user we get called out um we get called as soon as um yeah somebody doesn't handle the situation anymore that could be anything from turning flipping over on a snow machine or breaking a lead on a skiing skiing trip or something this is just the small stuff that happens any place but um it could be a bar fight there could be People getting lost um, because they didn't bring the equipment. They have no idea where they are. They thought this would be an easy walk, and then suddenly the weather turns bad. And there could be cruise ships running aground someplace. So it's all in between, and it's different things every year. Um, we had a lot of um, we had some groundings recently because now it's summer. Everybody's flying around. Uh, with the ships everywhere and then um, in winter it's typically snow machine accidents or skiing accidents and then in the time in between it's basically people getting lost. Except the grounding situation, most of the minor things sound a little bit like they are in the um, vicinity of Longyearbyen or Barentsburg, some closer areas. Um, they are because there is an area, area 10, which is accessible to people who are not residents of Svalbard. So we have actually um, sort of a, um, a border where people can roam free and not um, without a guide or without connection to somebody who is more or less local. So um, as long as you keep inside this area, then you can pretty much go where you want. Uh, but And this is also a little bit the point of this area. So we don't want to... Um, we want to be able to actually access them once they are in in need of help and also there might be yeah, certain restrictions necessary because if everybody can go any place and we can't control it in any way this will not only affect the research and rescue it will also affect the nature itself because if the most popular spots get visited a lot then you see the tracks eventually so we're currently sailing down Hindlopen Strait um in a cruise ship. So what happens if a cruise ship uh, comes into a situation of emergency up here? How, how is the in information system set up and, and, and what are the steps which will take action then afterwards? Pretty much like uh, emergencies on ships, other places as well. Um, should there occur a situation where the ship is not maneuverable anymore, um, then the bridge will contact the search and rescue. Uh, this is normally done by the ordinary means of VHF or the um, emergency channel and um, 
they can also they have a lot of equipment on the bridge they have the radio they have uh, satellite phones and um, the emergency transponders SIRTs and um, they will typically send signals to the joint rescue centrals in Norway Svalbard belongs to the northern part so our search and rescue central is in Buda the southern one is in Stavanger on the mainland so these two centers are the coordination centers for all search and rescue operations in the Norwegian area, which is not only on land, but also on water, which is quite a huge area. It's indeed a huge area, especially when you consider the uh, the, uh, the distance between mainland and, and, and Longyearbyen. Um, is there any incident with expedition cruise ships um, in, in recent years, which you can remember? Yes, we had, well, apart from the grounding <laughs> recently, uh, which was quite close to Longyearbyen um, and uh, ended well, luckily. Um, we had last year an incident with a ship, a minor cruise ship, or let's say almost a passenger ferry, going to Barentsburg, and they had some problem with the, I don't know if it was the engine or the steering, however, they could not reduce speed accordingly, and they hit the pier with uh, too much speed so and since this was a situation where a lot of passengers on board already were preparing for disembarkation they were standing outside on the decks or close to the doors and then suddenly there was a full stop and people fell over each other and broke some ribs and um, this was a huge incident in terms of numbers people affected and um, It was luckily close to um, civilization, if you can say so, because Barentsburg is quite well equipped. They have a hospital as well, minor as such, but still, and they have communications. And also it's within reach of our um, our rescue helicopters and the ships we have. So we can basically just, just swim over and help. So, But then there has been um, accidents earlier with cruise ships in, I believe it was actually Magdalena Fjord. A Russian ship which uh, ran aground and was about to sink and those guys probably hadn't done any safety drill or even considered the situation so um, when the search and rescue appeared there were a lot of people standing on an ice floe in um, nightgowns and some of them had floating devices on but they were very cold and freezing and looked very lost so um, they managed also here to rescue the people, but still it could have been so much worse in just a second. But Magdalena Fjord is uh, still relatively close compared where we are right now, so we are basically on the opposite side of um, Svalbard. The only way to get even further is on the other side of North Iceland, if I'm correctly. And um, how would a response plan look like? So what, what is the next action um, to your experience? What would happen from um, from a rescuer's point of view um, if a ship needs to be evacuated up here in the north? Um, as long as we know what exactly this kind of emergency is, then we can prepare a bit better. But usually if we don't get any signal or any indication about what is wrong, just like an emergency signal, the um, search and rescue joint center will try to call the station emitting the signal and try to reach them and they have access to both the um, iridium telephones they have access on the vhf and they try to call um, if they don't get any answer and um, they also typically call the owner of the ship and if this owner can confirm that this ship indeed is in this area and 
the signal might be real. Um, sometimes, you know, these devices just fall overboard and eventually get um, yeah, activated. And then there is no ship in distress, but we still have to, to look for it. Because last week we, we had this, there was some device sending out a signal and uh, we flew out and uh, it turned out to be just a device which had fallen overboard without anybody noticing and the ship was fine. People were fine, but... Um, just this device was sending signals. And we also had this in, in town, actually, in Longyearbyen, when people come and buy it, some stuff, because they've read this is a remote area and you should be prepared. And then these tourists walk around with these devices around their necks and incidentally, for some reason, <laughs> manage to push it on. And then the signal walks from the museum slowly towards the shop. Uh, we can follow these signals so we can sort of see where they come from. And uh, this this uh, pattern gives us an indication that this might probably not be a real emergency, but still we have to check it because there could be. So, um, but, uh, well, we get this signal and the Joint Rescue Center tries to establish contact to find out exa exactly what kind of help is needed and how the situation is there. So we can prepare because we have quite limited means on Svalbard and if we need more supplies or, um, yeah, people to help us we need to have a backup from the mainland which needs to be sent up here and typically this is usually two, f two hours of flight away and that is in good weather and ships might also be used for assistance if they are available um, but uh, if not then the helicopter is probably the fastest but we have only two of them and they can uh, if they have to evacuate people they do 20 in a lift this is the space they have and the load they can take and um, they can fly these people quite far but it depends of course on how far because eventually you need to fuel and go back again so our helicopters have range from Longyearbyen to station Nord and northern Greenland and they can also fly to Bjorn Aya and on to the mainland to Tromsø this is the range they have and they cover the whole area at sea in order to do so, they need to refuel, and we have um, a few refuel stations around on Svalbard, which is basically fuel depots. There's barrels of um, jet fuel placed out in the terrain, and they land, they refuel, and they continue. And if you have um, the governor's ship, the, sisl, uh, the polar sisl available as well, they can sort of work as a um, floating airfield as well, so they can enlarge in this area where the helicopters can go if they are available and on time and uh, in the region. But given like the regular size of an expedition cruise ship which is typically around 100-200 passengers that means it's between 10 and 20 flights for one helicopter or half for both so if a ship like that size would uh, need to be evacuated that means they would probably just drop them off at a, at a land site close to wherever that incident happened. That's right. Um, the ships are usually equipped for um, every passenger and crew on board. So they have some devices, uh, floating boats, lifeboats, life rafts, uh, so they can sort of keep afloat. And the Polar Code also um, um, demands that these ships are able to, or should be able to sort of keep these people sort of safe and alive um, for a certain amount of time. I think it's a week, I have to check that, but um, they are supposed to sort of keep some days and uh, to give us time to reach them and uh, sort of evacuate them to a safer place. So this will be the first step if you, a step if you have to evacuate the ship, then you 
typically board the life craft and um, sort of stay there and try to stay out of trouble. Uh, when the helicopter arrives and sees the need for evacuation of a huge um, huge group of people, um, they do 20 in a lift and our two helicopters on the latest exercise, they did 100 passengers in 55 minutes, both of them. And But this was an evacuation where they just lifted um, able and healthy people from the deck to a land site just a few kilometers away. And of course, peop things get more difficult and more complicated if you have to do lifts with a stretcher or people who are actually not cooperative because they are unconscious or uh, have broken legs or flip totally or something like this, or you have to fly further in order to drop them to a safe place. And then again, a safe place on land is maybe not always a safe place because up here it gets quite cold quite easily, so um, people really need shelter. and a chance to keep warm somewhere, warm and dry. Um, cold is probably the thing which is most deadly up here. And then if this is not enough, there might always be wildlife which sees people as food if they happen to be handy. And um, cruise ships might be armed if they do excursions on land, but in a case of emergency, um, I'm not sure they go and grab the rifles or have time to do so. And then again, um, it also depends on the policy on the ship. If these rifles actually are allowed to be brought in the life rafts, this is something the captains need to decide in a way. It's also like not the standard procedure in case of emergency that you think to take the rifles um, into a lifeboat. Um, just... How many people are living in, in, in Svalbard? I think it's 2,800 in total, all over Svalbard. Um, how many of them are engaged in kind of a search and rescue association? How many search and rescue bodies are there in, in, in Svalbard? Um, we have the professional ones, of course, uh, connected to the Sysselmannen, the police department, and they have, um, I think, around 15 officers who are partly also trained to handle such situations. 15, 1-5. 15, 1-5, yes. Um, and they, uh, but they will eventually get more administrative issues and tasks. Um, the guys doing the hands-on job is usually the hospital. Uh, the people in the air aircrafts, um, whether it's the planes or the two helicopters, guys on board on ships, um, and We have a lot of guides as well who are typically trained in first aid, medical help, um, and also very, yeah, they, this is their home place. They know this area. They know the, uh, the, how to deal with uh, temperatures and uh, winds and things like this. And then we have a Red Cross unit, which is, I think we have about 200 members, paying members and active members, maybe around 50. And then we have a small department of rescue dogs even, which is quite new. They started this after the avalanches in town, so then they founded this group to educate rescue dogs as well. So all in all, it's less than 100 people um, engaged in rescue operations uh, on a hands-on basis? Yes, in a way. And then we have uh, still these... Uh, we, I mean, it feels like we have the rest of your population, which we at any time might ask to... Uh, open the doors and help um, and there is a lot of help already in just talking to people, taking care of people who are probably not medically injured but who still need somebody to be there and uh, to comfort or just to make sure they 
they stay all right. And um, this is something which the whole town or all Svalbard basically does. We are we are used to living in rough circumstances and rough conditions here. And um, when shit happens, then we usually open our doors and help each other because it doesn't matter what nationality you are, if you are from the Polish station or from Barentsburg or from here, um, everybody helps each other. Yeah, that's something I learned from small communities. That's a much closer bond than in, in larger cities, um, where I lived in at least. Um, I heard something about a number of roughly 50 ships sailing around Svalbard every summer nowadays. So it's getting more and more, and by that also increasing numbers of people. Um, 100 people roughly um, being engaged in that search and rescue um, procedure. How would it look like in a case... Of, of a ship in a remote place. Um, when we see how the expedition ship industry is just um, evolving, how it's developing, they are building not only ice strengthened ship, but they're also um, building uh, an icebreaker, which is due to get into service in 21, which is in two years from now. Um, they are getting even further away than Svalbard. So around Svalbard is something that can be uh, reached by helicopter. When it's getting further towards the North Pole, um, how, how does a response plan looks like in, in those even remoter areas where you don't even have land access anymore? How is that um, divided between those different nations? I mean, we have a lot of claims uh, up there, especially recently geopolitics changed quite a lot over there. Um, how is the action plan there? Do, is there an action plan? Well, we have uh, divided this region in uh, different areas where all the um, Arctic governments and states are um, responsible for a part of it. And uh, you have Canada, you have um, Alaska, you have Greenland, Denmark, uh, Norway and Svalbard and the Russian half of the Arctic in a way. So um, we all have um, our sectors where we are supposed to support um, people in need and vessels in need. Um, when it comes to how those vessels prepare, um, they have to oblige the um, SOLAS rules, of course, which are established and the same for yeah for all the ships, man um, tourist ships working here. So um, Svalbard alone cannot dictate any change in these SOLAS rules, but basically every vessel sailing places should be able to um, take care of itself um, and also be navigated in a way that you um, do not that you need to assess the situation and then do not run into danger um, on every bridge it's always said safety first so I think you can't get any crew on the bridge or the captain to uh, maneuver places where he deems not safe um, even though the passengers want to get closer to some some site or some place so um, the captain has the last call he's responsible for the ship and um, he needs to make sure this ship stays out of trouble I mean that's the, the aim and the goal of every uh, crew of every captain no one wants to get uh, famous by an accident um, but when a ship like the icebreaker we're talking about is built there is a purpose for it and the purpose for an icebreaker is obviously to go into areas where no other ship can go so it is the remotest area possible which is accessible so far only by nuclear icebreakers provided by the Russians uh, as, as far as I think when I see the 
um, technical specifications of that vessel, um, then we have to say that the ice class of that icebreaker is similar to the new build icebreakers of the American Coast Guards serving the Arctic area um, from from Alaska and quite similar to the Canadian um, icebreakers of the Coast Guard. So we have actually a tourist vessel with the same ice uh, ice class, with the same capabilities, bringing tourists into that remote area. And I kind of think it's not going to be the last ship. It will be kind of a test balloon. So it will be an increased um, tourism in that sector, even in remoter places, less accessible places. So there is, it's just a question of time until something happens, because that's pretty much how it goes. No one wants to have an accident, but there will be the time that an accident happens, Murphy's Law. Mm -hmm. Um, When you have those sectors when I have a look at the at the map, then the landmasses from from Canada are very sparsely populated. When I see Arctic Canada, the the islands are very sparsely populated. I'm not even sure if Pond Inlet Inlet has a search and rescue division or something like that. Um, same goes for Alaska. So the northern part of Alaska, I'm not even sure if there is a search and rescue station somewhere. Same goes for Russia. Arctic Russia has some military bases on group of islands like uh, Franz Josef Land and uh, Novaya Zemlya. They might have the capabilities to actually go and, and, and do a search and rescue. But in fact, the closest populated place would be Svalbard. So it seems to be kind of the most logical um, solution in that way is Svalbard um, preparing for for that kind of role or is it ready or does it want to have that role or is it saying it's not our responsibility? We definitely can't take this responsibility alone because we are quite a few people and um, it's always a question whether how much do we have to change our place, how much should we change on Svalbard to um, comfort visiting people It starts with pavements. I mean, do we really need to make asphalt pavements for the tourists to walk on? Or can we expect them to actually accept that we have gravel roads and um, maneuver on these gravel roads accordingly? Uh, Do we really have to adapt to a European place in order to be accessible for those guys who can't walk on, on ground, on tundra or on stony moraines? Um... In one way, yes, then they might be able to actually make way through this uh, environment. But on the other hand, um, they are coming here to see something different, something which is not like at home. So probably, I think, educating these visitors um, in terms of what is reasonable to expect and are your expectations maybe just a little bit egoistic or are you um, are you aware of that your wishes might actually affect this place and destroy what you have come to see? So if we adapt too much to your wishes, if we fulfill too much of your expectations, will this still pl- be the place you wanted to see, which you wanted to see? So, um, and in search and rescue terms, um, maybe people should start thinking a little bit if it is really necessary to go places um for yeah to sell places for tourists i mean um people are talking about selling places to travels to the moon and to the mars 
well, I'm not sure this is necessary. I mean, it's always nice to explore things and there should be always somebody exploring, finding new ways. But um, they all, all the researchers, all these explorers, they knew that um, it was, it could in the worst case end with not coming back home. And many of them didn't. And they knew it and they did not necessarily expect somebody to just pick them up once they press a button because they didn't have this button to press. But they didn't bring tourists along in huge numbers. So I'm not quite sure if uh, this is our task to sort of prepare for people who have not thought the whole thing through. What I think is um, when you look at the cruise tourism around Svalbard, um, it feels like much, much more vessels than just 50. And this is probably just the big ones, but there is every year a number of minor yachts um, sail ships, motor vessels, um, sort of privately owned private charters who travel around here and check out different corners and they might be able seamen but um, still you should know the sea around here and you should know the conditions and uh, it might be safer to not go alone. This is a rule we have already um, in Svalbard when yeah, going on trips with family or friends. It's a recommendation to never travel alone. Always have somebody else with you because if you happen to end up in a glacier crack or something, somebody else will need to call for help. Um, so never travel alone. And this might also be an idea for people on the vessels that maybe one vessel should ne never travel alone. So if you look at this vessel here, the planches, um, we have another vessel of slightly bigger capacity which is not very far away. Um, they are currently south from us, I believe, and um, in full ahead, they might be able to yeah, reach us in a couple of days, I'd say. And um, as long as you have two vessels who are sort of following each other or helping out for each other, this will already serve as part of the search and rescue. And um, I think this is the same way wherever you go on the water and the world. If one vessel is in distress, the others around who hear this call are supposed to help. Um, so as long as you keep within reach of your VHF, um, there will be people to talk to. But then again, you have situations and times of the year up here where people suddenly discover places to go which were not accessible earlier. And then they just go there. And uh, probably this thought of what happens if something goes wrong is not very present at that moment. So they just follow some interesting thought or some promising view and they depart into unknown uncharted territory. And then they are alone and um, then they get problems actually informing somebody about the kind of distress they have. That's kind of the same thing I have in mind when it comes to uh, an icebreaker expedition cruise ship. When it goes there, it will most likely be alone because there's no other vessel which serves the same purpose. So when they go up there and they get into trouble, then I would love to go to another point uh, you mentioned already, and that's um, the satellite communication or communication at all gets more problematic the further we get north. So what kind of problem could they actually uh, encounter when they try to reach the North Pole and something goes really south? Well, the same thing that happened last winter here in Svalbard when somebody sends out a signal and tries to contact the world around you and there is no world around you, then you are basically screaming into the void and nobody hears you. And um, that's why I think if these icebreakers are going to the North Pole, if I was the owner of these ships and the company, I would send two vessels 
not together, they do not need to be within sight, but at least in a way they can communicate and um, they should be able to reach the other vessel within a certain reasonable time. So they could actually take over the passengers from one vessel and sort of be the backup if something happens. So what exactly happened last uh, last year? Last Christmas, yeah. Um, we got one of those um, distress signals and uh, that was sent from a station belonging to a trawler. And uh, the position, the signal indicated the position um, in Hinlopen, actually, um, on the coast north of yeah, somewhere in Nordostland. Nord and this signal was transmitted to the uh, Joint Rescue Center in Buda and they try to contact the vessel to check whether this is real, which is quite normal to do. And they could, m could make contact. They tried on VHF, they tried on uh, the uh, medium wave, on short wave, they tried on the satellite phones. And then they tried to reach the owner to, make sh to check if this was reasonable. And the AIS indicated there was a vessel up there. So, um, and the, um, the owners had actually managed to talked to this trawler for a short period of time. Uh, they had made contact on the satellite phone and um, could confirm that something was really wrong. They were in distress. They had some kind of emergency, probably a grounding, but did not know so much more. So um, then, of course, the alarm goes in Longyearbyen, which is the closest to find out how to get there to assess the situation. And since we don't really know what we need to take along, we have a certain idea about how many people we talk about, um, the crew on the stroller, that was 14 people, because this is what the owners know. When the vessel gets out, you know who's on it. And uh, those helicopters, they were just, um, they prepared. The first helicopter is supposed to lift within one hour, and they lifted shortly after half an hour. And uh, the next one is supposed to be ready after two hours, but they were just following basically a quarter yeah, 15 minutes behind. And they were making way towards this signal. Uh, that was in December, late December. And at the time there was really bad weather. So um, it was a small storm going on there. Um, snow was drifting. Uh, we, we're talking about um, a situation where we have really drift ice or have really bad ice conditions up here. Everything that um, turns out in humidity in the air freezes over immediately. So it, that's really bad weather conditions. Yeah, it is bad. We didn't really know how much ice was there. O apparently there was too little ice um, to keep people away from this area. So um, what else would this fishing boat do up there? I mean, they were the only ones. And normally Hinlopen is not accessible in this at this time of the year, um, 28th of December is pretty much dark. It is very dark. You don't have any daylight uh, at no time of the day. Then you have this, uh, since it's stormy, there's a lot of swell. There is uh, gusts coming from the water, salt water. There is um, harsh winds. It's cold. It was minus 20. And if you add the wind chill, it's not very comfortable being out there. Um, and of course, again, the the sights, uh, the, the the yeah, you can't really see very well because you need light to see. Um, and then, if the gusts just just block your view on all the windows, and make the deck slippery, it's not a place to be outside. So um, clearly, we knew this would be challenging, and this is why we decided to send both helicopters. Um, 
normally we send one first and then wait but um it was they were talking about 14 people and um, if we send both of them each helicopter could do the work faster so if each of them just took like half of the team and then the rest took the rest they could be brought into safety the fastest um, the flight time for a helicopter from Longyearbyen to the place where the signal came from was estimated to be roughly about one hour and a little bit in these conditions. Um, problem is again, when you fly the helicopter, you also need to see where you are. And typically vessels have navigation lights and they can also have these beacons, um, transponders, satellites, but still you need visual contact to be able to, um, to actually evacuate somebody because you need to know where to land and where to pick people up. So these guys, they were flying and hoping to see something and when they arrived, um, they didn't see anything. It was pitch dark and um, bad weather. But uh, the crew on the ship had obviously managed to hear some sound of helicopters. So they were able to fire one signal, uh, um, like a blast up to the skies, which was lightening up a little bit and then just caught in the next uh, wind and drowned in the ocean. But this was enough for the helicopters. They located the stroller and they were able to pick up the people. So 10 went in the first helicopter and the rest, the last four went in the second. And then within three hours, roughly, the whole mission was um, accomplished and successfully finished. So the people got transferred to Longyearbyen and uh, then got a nice welcome Christmas dinner. Yeah, actually, in a way they did. Um, this was just in the Christmas holidays and uh, whoever was engaged in this operation probably just left a nice dinner table when the call ma was made. So we are quite fast. Distances in Longyearbyen are not that far. So basically we just drop everything and rush out. Um, for me, I'm part of this uh, Red Cross unit when we got the alarm. Our task is to sort of support the hospital in case of yeah, them needing more help. If you don't know what kind of people you get in there, I mean, um, they could have fallen overboard. You could have had serious injuries. Um, you could have had, yeah, deceased people already. Um, so we don't really know what we what the helicopter brings to us until they have the, these guys on board and can tell us. And um, everybody did fine on the trawler. That is why this went quite smoothly as smoothly as possible in these conditions and um, the rescue operation per se is not very difficult this, or this is just what they train and what they do every time but what made it difficult and challenging was the weather conditions um, it was really not even if this were summer it wouldn't have been ideal to go out and rescue somebody but again it's typically a kind of weather when uh, when we need to go out because um, we need to go out when other people should have stayed at home Exactly, that's why I had in mind this is like the weather up here. Um, when it turns unpleasant, that's the most dangerous time of the year. Yeah, and it's usually a nice weather when people start, but uh, when they need help, then it's definitely the time when you shouldn't be outside. So um, for us living here, it's also a little bit a thought to have in mind that if you go on for a trip, hiking or whatever, um, check and make sure, uh, because you know those guys who are supposed to get out there to get you back in case everything turns to hell you know these guys and you know their families and uh, for me I wouldn't want to put somebody in danger um, we never ask our search and rescue team to, to 
sacrifice their own lives. This is not acceptable at all. But still, um, there is a wish from the rescue forces as well to to help as good as possible, to go as far as possible, to stretch as far as possible. And sometimes you have to just call it a night. You can't do more than what you just tried. So um, this is something to have in mind. You don't want to, yeah, to to do this to somebody you probably meet in the in the restaurant the next day. Um, yeah, if you know that you probably brought this person to a point where he needed to make a decision whether or not to go one step further. Again, that's um, the thing of a small community. You know pretty much everybody. Uh, what happened to the trawler? Oh, it's still here. <laughs> yeah, that was the next question, of course. Um, the people... Uh, there, there were some broken ribs on some frostbites, and that was to be expected. Um, but they made it back to Longyearbyen, and um, it was weekend, of course. So, well, we just phoned somebody, some owner of the shop, to open the shop to buy some toothpaste and toothbrush and necessities. And then they were lodged into a hotel, and somebody made some dinner for them. So they were really taken care of, and that's what we do. Um, so, uh, but the trawler was still there, and that was another issue because this part of um, Svalbard is a nature. Um, park so uh, it's very um, sensitive to pollution and disturbance and this trawler of course had a lot of marine diesel on board because it needed to be out on the water for quite a while and trawlers also carry a lot of other stuff which should not end up in the ocean um, fishing nets, fishing gear um, plastic uh, to pack the fish, oils uh, yeah, you name it, there's a lot of things on a vessel which should not end up in a bird reservoir or something. So, um, of course, we thought of... Yeah, we needed to get out there to check on this vessel what actually was the problem. They could tell us this was listing, they had hit ground, and there was water in the engine room, and it was listing. Uh, and then the next question was, is it possible to sort of repair this? enough to get this vessel off the rock and ship it back to Longyear and eventually to the mainland for some on some way so it would not be floating around there because this was still the beginning of winter season and the storms had just started. So and Hinlopen is not a very friendly place in storms. So um, if this trawler was stuck on a rock today, there was no guarantee it would be stuck on this rock next week. So um, basically we were all waiting for the weather to calm down and then uh, we went out to have a look again. Uh, by that time also we had um, received some support from um, vessels around. So um, normally we have a um, ice-going vessel, the Polarsyssel, which is the um, vessel for the governor. She keeps around here um, most of the time, but they have a winter holiday, which at that time was from end of November until uh, February. So they were basically on the mainland someplace and waiting for the season to start again. And then we have the Coast Guard around here and they have different vessels. And the one which actually has ice class enough and is an icebreaker was also for Christmas holidays on the mainland. And the closest one we had um, was at Bjornøya, but they did not have ice class enough to be allowed in to these conditions. But finally, the, um, this uh, Coast Guard vessel was the one to hear the call and um, to relay the Mayday and actually 
help translating and, and passing on the message between the Joint Rescue Center in border and the, um, the trawler as long as the radio worked because everything went black eventually so they didn't have any chance to communicate at all anymore. So, um, but by that time, both the um, icebreaker from the Coast Guard and the Polosisl had arrived. Um, no, icebreaker first, and the Polosisl came later. But um, the icebreaker came, and uh, they made way to the vessel to assess the situation. And uh, they found quite quickly that it was not possible to get this ship off the rocks. But uh, then we needed sort of to at least secure everything on board, make sure it did not float out and escape out into the ocean um, so they uh, it took them 10, 10 days more to basically empty the stroller from oils, from diesel from um, other liquids uh, take away the electronics uh, lock everything which might float overboard into the freezers and thus secure um, every loose item on, on board and um, then they left the stroller. They put a location device, three location devices on the stroller to be able to check upon movements if it, yeah, in case it would be taken by ice or just start floating eventually. The marine diesel you told um, last week was taken out by those little rip boats, um, drum by drum. So how many liters are going into a, a single drum on those rips? Yeah, these are quite small ribs. So what we did, we did like we brought these um, thousand liter tanks in a way, and uh, this was what fitted in this little uh, polar circle. And uh, then they had to shuttle between the coast guard vessel and uh, into the trawler, and they took like thousand liters every single time. And in total, I think it was. 300,000 liters or something. It was amounts. So they were busy quite a lot. They had to have a minor break in between due to weather. And then they continued. But they managed eventually. So everything was pumped out of the trawler and then pumped into the spare um, spare parts of the um, of the Coast Guard vessel. They they knew this would this was necessary so, so this vessel had been in Longyearbyen and on the way up to Svalbard as well picked up equipment they needed so they were prepared to take this cargo actually and then this stroller just left was left there and the decision was made um, to wait until the bird season is over so the birds would not be too distressed by a lot of activity in the area and then they want to take it out now in August. And the latest plan is to start in the beginning of August. Um, they will have some uh, some experts up there and they will try to reinforce the hull because there's a huge hull, hole in the hull. So they will need to do this and then they will try to pull her off the rock. And now she's actually listing even more, so we don't really, we haven't really been looking at how much work this is, but we can't uh, cut this ship up in pieces where it is right now. So it needs to be taken off and floating on its own keel to the to a safer place, basically. So they will reinforce the hull and then tug it away and probably to the mainland, and then it will just be disassembled. It's another huge task. Um, coming back to the polar search and rescue operations north of Svalbard um, would it be something imaginable 
that uh, organization like the Arctic uh, Council or whatever body might be um, applicable for that um, sets up a joint uh, search and rescue center for all Arctic countries which have um, yeah, land masses uh, close to the um, to the North Pole to conduct search and rescue operations in case they're needed. When tourism increases more and more, there needs to be an effective solution. But how could it look like? Uh, we have that actually in some part already. Um, most of it is military. Um, and still then the reason is why should we do this for tourism? Um, there's a lot of other traffic going on, research and yeah, other operations. So um, when, if, yeah, as soon as the Northwestern Passage and the Northeastern Passage get more and more accessible, they will be used. This is, we can't hide it. I mean, it's the shorter way to go from the east to the west and the other way around. So um, ships would prefer to go the short region instead of having to do the long run via Suez and uh, the Panama. So if this part gets accessible, it will be used. So we need to have some sort of we need to prepare for this, and um, I think everybody who has um, a border, a land border to this region should feel responsible. And uh, the, um, the co uh, cooperation already works in a certain degree. Um, we trained together. Uh, we had some large search and rescue exercises the past year where we actually involved also the Swedish search and rescue and the mainland Norway and um, we had um, a search and rescue mission going on a couple of years ago where we got some help from Russia actually from the Emacon um, and then of course we there should be established some uh, plans and uh, routines which are known to everybody in these regions who works in this search and rescue um, centers. So we all work in the same way, basically, and have the same idea about how to assess a situation, how to assess a problem. Uh, this is still something which we need to um, to get better doing so. Um, but we have uh, help available um, when we were looking for this helicopter, which went down in uh, East Jordan. Um, we were looking and ships were looking, all the ships in the area. And <laughs> funny enough, uh, the trawler, which now is here in Hindlopen, was part of the search and rescue um, operation as well, because they were in the area and they were the ones who indicated the spot where this helicopter was found later, because they could see it on their echo. So, um, yes, they, everybody is involved in this, and uh, we got help from uh, our Orion planes from um, the um, air squadrons in Norway and also from the Danish um, military from Greenland. They have um, flight crafts as well and they took a turn over and tried to check and cover the area roughly to see if they could find anything. So um, they have means and they have um, equipment in a certain degree, but I, I'm not quite sure how regularly they are this equipment is actually stationary in Greenland or if it's just there because it needed to yeah, supply the Danish uh, military with something and was occasionally in the area. But this should definitely be an idea, something to talk about because um, we can't stop people from going here. It's just what people do. They explore and they take the cheaper roads and they are economic so they want to 
take the shortest passage possible. And um, we need to educate those who travel here, and we need to prepare for accidents which happen even though you are prepared quite well because we can't fight nature. Sometimes there will things happen. Thanks a lot for the insights and uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. What an operation. And this is and and all this up there in the in the cold in the in the in the far out regions that is uh, uh I'm I'm impre I'm very impressed. It's a very complex topic indeed, yeah. Yes. So, um yeah, let's leave it at that. We'll put some more information into the show notes, um, including a link to Hinlopen Strait, so you can get an idea where this is and what, it's, what it looks like there. And yeah, thank you so much for bringing that interview, Henry. That's uh, it's, it's great that you're out on ships and you meet so many interesting people. I really Indeed. enjoy this. So everyone, uh, if you want to talk to us, if you want to point us to things, if you have feedback about anything we do here, um, we have a Twitter account, Curiously Polar, and uh, we also have other ways to contact us on our website, CuriouslyPolar.com. We'll be back in a week from now with another episode. Um, that time, I think we're going to Greenland. So until then, take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.